You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash Film School. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Before he attained notoriety as Dean of the Hollywood Ten, the blacklisted screenwriters and directors persecuted because of their varying ties to the Communist Party, John Howard Larson had become one of the most brilliant, successful, and intellectual screenwriters on the Hollywood scene in the 1930s and 40s, with several hits to his credit including Blockade, Sahara, and Action in the North Atlantic. In his new book, The Final Victim of the Blacklist, John Howard Lawson, Dean of the Hollywood Ten, author Gerald Horn restores this major figure to his rightful place in history and recounts one of the most captivating episodes in 20th century cinema and politics. Gerald Horn is Moore's professor of history at the University of Houston and author of several books, including Black and Brown, African Americans, and the Mexican Revolution. Gerald Horn. Tell us a little bit about John Larson. Uh, what was his history like in uh, Hollywood before the uh, House Un-American Activities Committee uh, brought him up into the hearings? Well, John Howard Lawson is probably best known for writing Sahara, starring Humphrey Bogart, a World War II drama, hmm. a military drama, that features some rather dynamic anti-racist scenes, still unique to Hollywood, I might about, add. About what time? When was this? 1942. And also action in the North Atlantic during the same World War II period, also starring Humphrey Bogart, also uh, featuring uh, reflections on the war that was then unfolding. And then he wrote uh, Blockade in the 1930s, starring Henry Fonda, introducing him to a wider audience, one of the few Hollywood movies that engages what may have been the most important moral political dilemma of that era, I'm speaking of the Spanish Civil War. And he also wrote the screenplay to Algiers, starring uh, Charles Boyer in the 1930s. And then, after he had been, quote, blacklisted, unquote, he wrote the screenplay to Cry the Beloved Country, which introduced Sidney Poitier to a wider audience and also introduces a new genre, that is to say the anti-apartheid drama. This film was made on location in newly apartheid South Africa, based on the award-winning novel by the South African writer Alan Payton. But... Lawson wrote that film with a front, that is to say a third party uh, uh, masqueraded as the writer, because if Lawson's name had been on the silver screen, well, his name would not have been on the silver yes. screen, so uh, plain and simple. Now, this was, this was after the hearings. This was after he'd been blacklisted, which would have been about, when, when did he write that, about 55? or? No, no, no. This, this film comes out in 1950, 1951. So a lot changed between the two. I, I imagine that early on in his career, I mean, his, it sounds like with, with Bogart and with Boyer, and uh, you said uh, Fonda, too, was involved, yeah. that that uh, he was a draw. In fact, he almost sounds like he boosted the career of some of these stars. That's certainly the case. Uh, and before coming to Hollywood in the 1920s, as the industry was making that difficult transition from the silent film to the talking film, and moguls were in desperate search for any who had the ability and skill to write glistening dialogue. Before being attracted to Hollywood, Lawson was considered the hope of the Broadway theater, that is to say the, the New York theater. Uh, he was in, in 
well known as a dramatist, and in fact, uh, later in his life, uh, wrote uh, books on the theory of drama, and in fact, the theory of film, which are still being consulted to a degree. Uh, indeed, uh, Ilya Kazan, who you may know uh-huh. as the director of On the Waterfront and Pinky, and among other uh, Hollywood uh, blockbusters, and in many ways is the ideological polar opposite of, of Lawson, insofar as Kazan was a former communist who decided to become a friendly witness before the House on American Activities Committee, as opposed to Lawson's turn as an unfriendly witness, that is to say, Kazan named names of others who presumably were part of the Communist Party, or at least were thought to be so. But interestingly enough, Kazan notes that when it came time to direct East of Eden, starring James Dean, he consulted uh, Lawson's work on the theory of film and the theory of drama, because in Lawson's work, which as noted are still being consulted, it's very informative on uh, how to write empathetic characters, how to construct a narrative arc, uh, how to construct uh, a drama or a film that an audience will be engaged by. And uh, I should also add that after he had been blacklisted uh, in the early 1950s, it was this kind of labor that Lawson increasingly turned his attention toward. It sounds as if um, he was quite a, a, a... He stood out among uh, many of the playwrights uh, and writers of the time in the sense that he was willing to take on issues. Was he a lot different? Were, was there a cadre of people that were doing that? I think it's more the latter, and that's one of the things that I, I, I strive to to, uh, to introduce in this book. That is to say, if you just look at the, the so-called Hollywood Ten, I mean, you have people like Dalton Trumbo, yeah. who wrote the screenplay to Exodus, uh, one of the, the first films dealing with the history of the formation of Israel. He wrote the screenplay to Spartacus, a uh, still important uh, anti-slavery drama. He wrote the novel, Johnny Got His Gun, uh, which I think is even more important today than it than it was when it came out some 60-odd years ago. I mean, you have people who are not necessarily thought of as being part of of this circle of left-wing and radical writers uh, who, at the time, in fact, were part of the circle. I'm thinking of Elf Scott Fitzgerald, Mm -hmm. for example, who, of course, is known as the novelist who constructed The Great Gatsby, This Side of Paradise. But his novel, The Last Tycoon, quite frankly, is, is... is one of the, the the great Hollywood novels, not least because, interestingly enough, the the sharply etched characterizations not only of film moguls but also of labor organizers. Mm-hmm. In fact, in the penultimate scene, as represented in the movie of the same name, which came out some years ago, starring Jack Nicholson and Robert De Niro, the labor organizer, who in fact is a communist, basically uh, throttles and thrashes uh, the mogul. And in fact, this is one of the quite frankly, one of the more interesting literary depictions of a communist in U.S. Uh, literary history. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could even con- consider Ernest Hemingway to be part of this circle, as I point out uh, in the book. Insofar as uh, Ernest Hemingway, uh, who, of course, spent a good deal of his time in Cuba, uh, particularly before 1959, and the Cuban Revolution actually contributed financially to, to the Cuban Communist Party. So Lawson, as I point out, it would be a mistake to see him as a solitary figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was part of a circle of progressive and left-wing and radical writers. And I think what oftentimes happens, understandably perhaps with history, 
is that since the United States is in an era of conservative ascendancy, oftentimes, that is to say today, oftentimes it's assumed that that's always been the case, and so you can sort of uh, thrust today back into the past. Yeah. And, of course, that's a, a mistake. We're speaking with Gerald Horn, the author of The Final Victim of the Blacklist, John Howard Lawson, Dean of the Hollywood Ten. Give us some historic context, and then really what the purpose of the uh, hearings were other than out, well, they were to out, supposedly out communists who had infiltrated Hollywood, but give us some kind of historic context for what was going on at the time. Well, between 1941 and 1945, that is to say during World War II, the United States was in an alliance with the then former Soviet Union, which was deemed to be necessary in order to defeat Germany and Japan. It was in that context that President Franklin Delano Roosevelt himself uh, basically cajoled the studios to make uh, what could only be called more pro-Soviet films because Roosevelt felt that this alliance between Moscow and Washington could not achieve liftoff as long as there was a deep and pervasive anti-communism in the United States. And so as a result, you see Warner Brothers producing A Mission to Moscow, which, if you can find a copy, is, is, is a quite startling film insofar as it portrays uh, Joseph Stalin, the Soviet leader, uh, as something of a Moscow version of Roosevelt himself, that is to say, mm-hmm. you know, beloved by the people and, and, and all the rest. Now, after World War II, after this, uh, after Germany and Japan is, are defeated, the, the climate changes in the country. And what had, to that point, thought to be okay was no longer okay. And what happens is that the House begins to investigate Hollywood, suggesting that screenwriters in particular were smuggling subversion onto the silver screen. Mm -hmm. And that is what brings uh, Lawson to Washington in October 1947. Now, anyone who knows anything about film writing knows that a screenwriter cannot unilaterally impose his or her vision on the silver screen. Mm -hmm. There are just so many uh, intermediaries. I mean, there's a director, for example. You know, today's Hollywood, the, the no matter who writes the script, the, the movie is said to be by the director. Right. Uh, there are producers, there are movie moguls. In uh, the 1940s, there was an uh, external censorship unit to which a writer would submit scripts, and of course these writers were scrutinized and inspected to a fairly well. The Bank of America, then as now, was the major supplier of capital to Hollywood, and it would be malfeasance and misfeasance of the highest sort for banking executives to turn over tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars so that a screenwriter, a radical screenwriter, could impose his his or her vision. I mean, the very concept is is ludicrous on its face. But actually, uh, what was at stake in October 1947 when Lawson was brought before the House on American Activities Committee was something else. What was at stake, of course, in part, was the question of labor. Uh, Lawson had been the founding president of what was then known as the Screen Writers Guild, had then gone on to help organize the actors and the Screen Actors Guild, and also the directors had marched with uh, the so-called below-the-line laborers, carpenters, electricians, decorators, when they went on strike in 1945 and then were locked out in 1946. Hollywood, as you know, has a very contentious uh, mm-hmm. labor management relation, e- even today. Mm-hmm. And uh, Certainly, these hearings put labor on the back foot, and it certainly led to the ouster from the industry of some of the most vigorous defenders of the position of labor, and that includes Lawson in the first place. Who who was heading up the hearings? 
Well, Jay Pornell Thomas, a congressman from uh, New Jersey, was the chair of the committee, but, but also on the panel <laughs> yes. was a prematurely balding, ski-nosed congressman from Yorba Linda, California, <laughs> okay. with a apparent permanent five o'clock shadow. I'm speaking of uh, one Richard Milhouse Nixon, yeah. who used those hearings to uh, bring more notoriety to himself and went from Congress, that is to say the U.S. House of Representatives, to the U.S. Senate, from there to the Vice Presidency, and from there to the to the White House. Now, of course, uh, Nixon was a recipient of lush campaign donations from the moguls, and indeed, uh, subsequently, a movie was made about the Nixon the Nixon story, which portrays him rather mythically and heroically. And it was rather curious that uh, this man, who was receiving funds from the moguls, then hammered relentlessly the moguls' central antagonist, that is to say, uh, Lawson. It was all very curious. But in any case, Lawson, at this hearing room, was being asked about two organizations, one the Screenwriters Guild and the other the Communist Party. Now, as you probably know, there was a legal dilemma involved in terms of uh, acknowledging one's relationship to the Communist Party, because then one would be asked to testify about uh, who else might have been involved. Uh, Then you might have to implicate parties uh, who either had left the Communist Party or perhaps were not even in the Communist Party, but whose names would be dragged through the mud nonetheless. I I want to ask an important question, uh, pardon me, but I was not illegal to be a member of the Communist Party, was it? No. Not, as, this, this not is, in October 1947, this is, for this most is, of the history of the United States. Yeah, this is this is all for political, to, to uh, tar somebody, if you will, uh, uh, politically, right? Isn't it? Well, basically, yes. It, it was to suggest that uh, these people were political outliers and that they were subversives and yeah. they were okay. conspiring. But it wasn't illegal. Well, no. just I want to no. people. I think they assumed that this is something that it was just some kind of underground illegal. You know, Al Qaeda kind of operation. In fact, it was it was people who 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 believed in a communist political philosophy. Yes, and of course, as you well know, there is a First Amendment that yeah. guarantees not only freedom of speech but presumably freedom of association. Right. And so Lawson was being queried and interrogated about this, and uh, things got rather heated, and eventually he was forcibly ejected from the uh, hearing room, and from there was adjudged to be in contempt of Congress, was then indicted, tried, and convicted, and spent a year in federal prison in Ashland, Kentucky, where his cellmate was Dalton Trumbo. What happened there in that cell? Well, it's interesting. I talk about that a little bit in the book. Uh, Both of them spent a fair amount of time writing letters for fellow inmates. And uh, some of these inmates, fellow inmates, of course, were illiterate, and so they would read incoming um, letters uh, from uh, these inmates' loved ones. And, mm-hmm. you know, they spent a lot of time talking and conversing about their futures and what was happening into the country into which both were born. We, we've been speaking about, uh, by the way, I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Gerald Horn and the, uh, the author of The Final Victim of the Blacklist, John Howard Lawson, Dean of the Hollywood Ten. In addition to launching the the political career of uh, Richard Nixon, there were a couple other prominent figures who were at least peripherally involved at that time. And one political and one entertainment, soon to be political. Ronald Reagan was, in fact, uh, president of the Screen Actors Guild. Did his outing of of members of uh, the Hollywood community uh, come later, or was it during this period of time that Reagan himself? Well. It's happening during this post-World War II era. In the early post-World War II era, 
Ronald Wilson Reagan was a reliable member of the New Deal liberal community. Right. And even uh, participated in what some might call uh, communist-affiliated organizations. In fact, in my first book in Hollywood, I have a picture of Reagan at one of those meetings. And in this book on Lawson, I talk about John Garfield, the actor, who goes to, who also is, is part of this this liberal left community who goes to a meeting uh, of these sort of uh, within the orbit of the Communist Party and he sees Reagan there and Reagan seems sort of shocked to see uh, Garfield and Garfield is even more shocked to see Reagan there. Yeah. But Reagan is in the process of moving steadily to the right and it's interesting in his memoir Whereas the Rest of Me Reagan says that. Uh, one of the reasons that he began to move to the right was because of what he saw as the perfidious nature of one John Howard Lawson, who he saw as seeking to manipulate Hollywood on behalf of Moscow, and Reagan says that he took a singular objection to that. Okay, and then there's one other figure I think is important during this period of time, although we didn't find out about it till much later, and that was Walt Disney. Well, Walt Disney, uh, I talk about him uh, quite a bit in my first book because of, of his rather ham-handed approach to, to labor relations. It was said in Hollywood at the time that Walt Disney probably created more radicals than Karl Marx <laughs> because of the onerous working conditions that he inflicted upon workers. I mean, even to this day, uh, as I said, I mean, workers in Hollywood have it, have it hard. I mean, I, I just saw the film by Haskell Wexler, the Oscar-nominated uh, camera operator, and it's called Who Needs Sleep? And the title <laughs> basically reflects the fact that those Hollywood workers who can get work yeah. oftentimes have to work three or four days in a row, 18 hours a day, and then they hop in their cars and to drive home exhausted and fatigued and then have accidents and kill themselves or kill others on the, on the freeways. Yeah. And that's in 2005, 2006, so you can imagine what was obtaining 60, 70-odd years ago yeah. was even worse. And Disney was probably the most notorious uh, studio boss of them all in that regard. We've subsequently found out, in addition to him being sort of a uh, dictatorial boss, he was also instrumental in, I, I hate using the word outing, but this is the, the outing what he called communist uh, sympathizers and communists at the time. So he, he, had a, he had a pretty deep history here with all of this. Yes, and, and Reagan, of course, was, Reagan. has been accused of doing the same thing. Yeah. In fact, Reagan has been accused of actually being some sort of de facto agent right. for the FBI, with a, with a code name even, who uh, was uh, very important in terms of uh, unmasking, if you like, uh, those who were thought to be radical. It's funny how, as we sit here at this, at this particular point in history, what the perceptions of a lot of these people are and the sometimes very different reality of the way that they've behaved in their lifetime. It's, it's, so, it's always fascinating to me how you ask anybody about Walt Disney or Disneyland, it's the happiest place on earth, and he was nothing but magic, but wasn't the case. <laughs> well, you know, uh, the victory oftentimes is written by the victor, uh, <laughs> that, although a few of us dissidents can slip in. I was going to say, that's why we need books like yours. So. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now, recently, there's the film The Majestic. Is, yeah. is, is that based, that's with Jim Carrey, is that based at all on Lawson's life? Is, is there any accuracies in this film at all? Well, I, I would say it's loosely based upon Lawson. Uh -huh. You might recall the film. Jim Carrey is, is mostly known for his comic turns and yes. such, well, what some might call forgettable films like <laughs> or, <laughs> I'm with you on that. <laughs> okay. Most of the time, we are with you on that. I yeah. see. 
serious film. It, 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 he plays a screenwriter who has a bout of amnesia and winds up in a town called Lawson, California, where the newspaper is called the Lawson Beacon. And then he finally recovers his memory, and then he winds up in a hearing room, not unlike the one that Lawson uh, was in in October 1947, and, and has an experience, not unlike the one that Lawson had. And insofar as he's uh, contesting the uh, McCarthyism of the committee, and then is forcibly ejected. It's a serious film. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't receive that much attention, despite the fact that Jim Carrey, as you know, is a, a big star. star. Yeah. Hey, I remember it being really ripped uh, at mm. the time, at the, at the time that it came out. There was a lot of very negative reviews. We often talk about the liberal Hollywood, the liberal this, liberal that, and uh, that's not the case. And there's still strong uh, sectors of uh, Hollywood, very well-known stars who are very right-wing and very adamantly right-wing, and so it does debunk some of that idea that it's all liberal. Well, it's, it's very curious, even though Hollywood has this reputation as being a citadel of liberalism, if you look at who's actually elected to office, be it Ronald Reagan or Arnold Schwarzenegger or Fred Dalton Thompson, who I just saw in Looking for Comedy in the Muslim World, a former senator from Tennessee, yeah. also in the Law & Order TV series, uh, they, they all seem to come from the right of center. Although there is a larger point that I do think we all need to think about a bit more deeply and a bit more pro profoundly, which is that there does seem to be a, a tendency for those in the arts, be it uh, poets or dancers or sculptors or painters or screenwriters, to lean towards the left, perhaps because in order to be an artist, it seems that a requirement may be some sort of sympathy for the human condition or mm -hmm. some sort of empathy for human suffering. And that may help to shed light on that. But in any case, in terms of those who actually throw their hat into the ring, uh, as the record shows, they're mostly conservative. They are almost all, con yeah, very rarely do you see a so-called liberal, Hollywood liberal, uh, uh, run for public office. It's, well, we, we uh, Nathan and I put together a book on Bob Dornan, and his supporters included Gene, Gene Autry, Loretta Young. There's a slew of people, right-wing, very well-known Hollywood people, all right-wingers. So it, it goes back a ways. Mm. Yeah. And, of course, when... Uh, when they enter the public square, such as John Wayne Airport or <laughs> Bob Hope Airport right, or, right. You know, or Ronald Reagan Airport. <laughs> Ronald Reagan Airport. Uh, very curious. Uh, well, uh, well, Gerald Horn, thank you very, very much. Uh, I the, wish I had more time yeah, to talk Yeah, we really, this, this is, is fascinating. Uh, You've been a great guest. Uh, the, uh, the book is The Final Victim of the Blacklist, uh, John Howard Lawson, a dean of the Hollywood 10. Gerald Horn, thank you for being on Film School. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.org slash filmschool.